Hi, Coffee and Convo listeners. I'm your host, Liz Bullard, and here's a quick ad before we get into our episode. Combo listeners, my name is Liz, your host, and this is my podcast where I talk with friends, leaders, and all great conversationalists about activism, politics, and wellness. In this episode, I am super honored to have Jeff Lee here. He is an activist and doing great work in so many different areas. So, Jeff, welcome. Thanks for having me, Liz. How are you doing today? I am doing very well. Um, again, in reading your articles and your interviews, I am like very inspired and humbled to have you here, if I'm being super honest. Well, first off, flattery will get you everywhere. Uh, <laughs> and second, the pleasure is all mine. I really appreciate you taking the Absolutely. time. And I'm so excited to be able to speak to the audience today about, you know, obviously the world is a very complicated place. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, especially during a global pandemic, especially during the rise in hate crime, um, the Black Lives Matter movement, obviously what's happening in Afghanistan right now, uh, and opportunities for citizens like you and me to figure out what we could be doing to make the world a better place. That's something that I'm really excited to talk about today. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I will start off with the easy question. And so this is my coffee and combo question where I ask you, are you a coffee or a tea person? What is your perfect cup? Uh, I would say right these days it's an, you know, it's an iced Americano with soy milk, uh, that's been getting me through, um, you know, my days, you know, uh, when I was actually working overseas in mm-hmm. Afghanistan and other conflict zones, I mainly drank tea. It was largely, um, because it was just easier to access. But now that I'm back in the States, uh, certainly my coffee is a, a desperate appreciation for life once, <laughs> I, once I have some in me. Absolutely. And I I think definitely having kind of like that ice element is needed because you need to have kind of like a cool down period of all the work and all of um, the things that you are juggling. So hopefully uh, you can get one today if you haven't already had one. I've got one in front of me. You said coffee with Liz. It's not called, you know, talk emptily with any, with nothing with Liz, right? So, so yes. Uh, also, you know, with DC, DC humidity uh, is notorious. It is a swamp. Um, and so, yes, having the ice is helpful. If anything, they give you, you know, some sort of H2O right. <laughs> with it, to be honest. So Absolutely. you got to stay hydrated. Absolutely. And that's my excuse. I'm like, if I pad like 10 cups of tea, I'm like, well, there's water in there. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. So Jeff, tell the listeners a little bit about you and like, how, how did you become an activist? Like, how did you become so passionate about, you know, um, your work? You know, uh, I think the first thing I talk about when, when I'm trying to describe me is I have to start with who got me into the world, which is my parents, right? When two people love each other very much, here we are. Um, but my parents were, uh, you know, Vietnamese refugees. They, came over after the fall of Saigon in 1975 and, you know, bounced around to different refugee camps for six years before they landed in California. I was born a year later. And, uh, you know, so much of the lessons of my life were driven by my parents' experiences and lessons and teachings. And, you know, they, you know, came here with nothing and started a small gardening company. Uh, And so at age eight, my first job was mowing lawns for people. Uh, and two, I learned two things about uh, mowing lawns. Number one, manual labor sucks. It is not <laughs> easy. Uh, but the second lesson, which is actually a lesson that's very important for what we will talk about today, is that uh, there are people out there that will treat you differently based on 
what they perceive you to be. Mm. And so when I was mowing lawns, I was treated very much like someone who mowed lawns. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was such an interesting concept for an eight-year-old to realize that um, just because we're all equal doesn't mean we're actually equal. Mm. And that's something that really helped, I think, cement my thinking and the work I do to sort of uh, be a voice for the most vulnerable or folks who've been historically disenfranchised or, you know, communities that haven't had the same resources or opportunities that the government and others should be providing. So that's sort of a big frame of my life. And um, I'll tell you, you know, my um, <laughs> my evolution into being um, an advocate for others mm-hmm. uh, was a long arc. Uh, I, I'll tell you as an Asian American, as a Vietnamese American, um, you spend your entire life being taught two things. One, mm-hmm. um, that uh, to survive, you must blend in. Mm. So actually sticking out is not a good thing. And so when people make slightly offensive or pretty offensive jokes, you kind of laugh. Mm-hmm. When, uh, you know, people uh, assume certain things about you, you kind of just nod because mm-hmm. you're just trying to get by. And it's largely on this premise that your parents, my parents, who came here or nothing, escaped a government that was out to murder them. So it's all mm-hmm. about trying to hide. And so that was an important sort of point of view. The second one, which was very helpful, and I'll tell you the story of this when I was at you know, age 10, I decided I was going to run for uh, student class president, fifth grade. <laughs> and, you know, I figured 35 kids, I'd get 18 votes. Let's see. And I remember telling my mom that I was going to do this. And she said, you know, son, you got to be careful. They're not going to think you're American. Mm-hmm. And I remember going to the classroom and um, telling people I was running and trying to you know, canvas her votes. And one of these boys went up to me and was like, you know, Jeff, people aren't going to vote for you because they think you eat dog. And I was like, eat dog? Why would I? I have a dog. What would I eat when I mean, I walk the dog. I like hang out with the dog. I wouldn't eat it. It probably wouldn't be that tasty. Any, It just seems so foreign to me. Just how foreign his comment was about me mm. being foreign, right? Just blew my mind. Right. And after lunch, after playing basketball with the boys, I came back and on my desk was a drawing of a little boy that looked just like me eating a dog. And so um, you learned that was the sort of the second big lesson that I had in my life, which was um, people really don't think you're American. People Mm -hmm. really think you're foreign. People think you're the other. People think you're from somewhere else. And that there are others that will remind you of that because that's the system. Mm-hmm. Um, the third lesson to that, which I think is so helpful to inform me, which is um, that stuff is not just innate. That stuff is taught. Mm. And so that meant that you need to do more to educate. You need to do more to have conversation. You need to do more um, to invest time and energy to supporting others. And so that's sort of when I went into this, you know, sort of three-pong career, my career number one that focused on working internationally and supporting our country in multiple, you know, um, opportunities of (laughs) conflict and challenge. Uh, And probably most notably and most timely for the news cycle is, you know, I spent multiple years in Afghanistan supporting economic development projects, large-scale infrastructure, uh, and then human rights work supporting women and girls um, for about four years. And so it was something I was deeply committed to. And it was also on the premise that, you know, the United States uh, was committing real time there. And that as an American, as a someone who was allowed to exist in the United States, I felt mm-hmm. an obligation to try to give back. And then the second phase when I returned was trying to give back to my home state, which is in California. And so that's mm-hmm. where I get to work for the governor of California for five years working on issues that affect, you know, the most complex policy matters ranging from, 
you know, agriculture for farmers, rural hospitals, disaster relief, flop, mm. fires, floods, cybersecurity attacks, mass shootings. You've and been you know, busy. <laughs> yeah. And you know, in California, every year there's a historic fire and some yes. sort of horrible tragedy and the government needs to respond, right? So I was their lead responder. Um, which I thought was important, but also in supporting veterans or supporting um, small businesses, sort of groups that don't have it easy. And mm-hmm. sometimes they need a hand. They need a hand to get up and then they can run, but they need to get up. Uh, and sometimes having an arm for somebody is important. And now in the third phase of my life, which is you know more in the technology sector, I work at a fintech startup that's focused on providing you know other solutions for renters. Um, you know, you can imagine we, we're about to have millions of people be evicted right. through no fault of their own because of the virus, because they've had economic insecurity and up to 3.6 million people might be evicted by the end of the year. Mm. And, you know, I think about how on earth do we do a better job in supporting these Absolutely. folks? Absolutely. So those are sort of the big, you know, tiers, but they all have the same theme, which is doing more for the folks who have less. And uh, mainly, and these are folks largely who have not, it's not on their own, it's not their own fault, right? It's just mm-hmm. the circumstances. It's a veteran who's struggling with integration and PTSD. Mm-hmm. It's a rural community that doesn't have any resources for healthcare. It's, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a immigrant owned small business that hasn't had access to loans in the same way because the mm-hmm. banks won't take them. Right. So it's things along those lines that I try to focus my energy into. And so to your point, the actual question, um, how did I become an activist? Um, you know, the tipping point for me uh, was last March. Um, I was, this was just before the pandemic shut mm-hmm. down. The country. So this is like days before. And I was flying for work. Um, I was flying to California, rushing to get, <laughs> to get through security because I was running late, just like many others. Right, and right. I had a little more time. And as I was going through, a, a woman came up to me. She spits right in my face and tells oh. me to go back to where I come from. I don't think she means California. Mm. And um, the thing is this, right? So two things. One, this has happened to me before. Mm. So I actually have a response right? because it's happened. The second is, remember, it's all about blending in quickly. Right. And I usually blend in my making jokes. And so the joke I had was, gosh, if I had an umbrella, if I, you know, if I knew it was going to rain, I should have brought an umbrella and it's enough to diffuse the tension. It's enough to let things just go. And it's enough for me just to carry the shame by myself. Mm. And uh, the thing that, the thing that isn't upsetting, isn't getting spit on that. That's not great, but there's worse things in the world. The upsetting part is watching about a dozen people around me. Yeah. Look at me, look away, move on. Oh, wow. As if the incident didn't matter. I didn't matter. None of it mattered. And I think, unfortunately, that's, that, that is the issue. The issue here, if you look at history, is bad things happen when good people don't do things when bad things happen. Right. Then, then we're all complicit, right? So the bystander problem. And as you've seen, I'm sure in recent months, there were a number of viral videos on social media yes. of basically older Asian-American women being beaten up by somebody and then all these people just watching. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the that's the trauma that I cannot shake, uh, especially for you know the most vulnerable. When I think of seniors, when I think of women who carry disproportionate um, amounts of discrimination, violence, xenophobia, um, 
and you know about um, you know small business owners who've had to deal with vandalism mm -hmm. as we're sort of emerging you know as we can with delta and so just you know it's sort of in a, the asian american pacific islander community you have two threats you've got the threat of catching the virus and the threat of being assaulted or attacked or killed mm -hmm. because of how you look right so those are so in many ways you'd rather get the virus than get beaten up um right. and that's been the case for the and that is the case for um, some seniors where they're hiding, even though they need access to resources, access to the grocery store won't even go. Right. Right. And won't even get their, their virus shot because it's too scary to go outside because mm -hmm. they've seen what happened too. And so that's something, you know, I think about, and for me, that was the turning point. And I spent a few months thinking, okay, how is going to do this? And for me, the, the, the sort of the moment where I was going to start writing to, you know, what you alluded to in August, um, you might, so in August, I had the chance to um, talk to my parents. We were catching up yeah. and my parents were just so upset. And I was like, mom, what's going on? Like, dad, what's going on? And, um, you know, 20 years earlier, they had moved from California to Georgia. They run a free range organic chicken farm down there, 200,000 chickens, you know, sort of a, you know, you know, small, medium enterprise. And they befriended these folks over the years, right? They're about three hours aside of Atlanta. And, you know, you build these bonds, you do business together, you break that bread together, right? You sort of you know, you really get to know a community. Mm -hmm. And when the virus broke out that March, um, there were three places that were hit pretty badly. One was New York City, mm -hmm. one was Italy, mm -hmm. and one was Southern Georgia. A whole ton of people contracted the virus at a funeral. And that funeral site was not too far from my parents. And um, over the coming months after, once the community was sort of recovering from that, my parents noticed they were getting less and less opportunities to socialize or less and yeah. less opportunities to be engaged with their community until someone told them just flat out, Hey, listen, you know, we like you, but you're the reason why the virus is here. Oh, how horrible. And that's when I said, Oh my gosh, this, I, I, I can't not do anything anymore. Mm -hmm. And so, um, at the end of August for the first time in my entire life, a year ago, so a year ago, a year ago, I wrote my first opinion piece. I put it in the local paper as a distribution of about 30,000. So it's nothing too big. Uh, the piece was about the contribution of immigrants during COVID-19. So specifically focused on how they keep small businesses going, yes. how they're on the front lines of healthcare, mm -hmm. um, how they're on the backdrop of the research and development for the vaccine that you and I get to use. So kind of a big thing. Right? Yeah. And, you know, we're a nation of immigrants. We're a nation mm -hmm. of refugees. And mm -hmm. I think the Afghanistan conversation highlights that, that uh, people don't just see Afghans, for example. You know, they see... Vietnamese too, they see themselves mm -hmm. because to, you know, today's Afghan was yesterday's Vietnamese, which was mm -hmm. yesterday's German, which was yes, you know, so yeah. this is, there's that connection um, that goes beyond skin or culture. Like, you know, people don't just like get excited about leaving their ancestral homeland, never come back. That's not exactly. <laughs> not the vacation you're looking forward to. Yeah. No, far, yeah. One way stop. Right? right. Not so much. No, it's definitely not Tahiti. Yeah, right. And um, and so I, you know, I wrote this piece, and and two things happened from it. One, uh, people actually read it, which is surprising because I don't know if people read anymore. Um, people actually read it. Uh, it was read and circulated significantly. And two, um, my parents' neighbors read it, mm. and they apologized to them. Oh wow! 
And that really surprised me. And it's funny because, you know, these folks had known me over the years. You know, they're like, oh, yeah, Lee's son. He's uh, he's the one in those shiny office jobs. <laughs> That's how they describe me, right? <laughs> Which I think is really funny. Um, but, uh, but yeah, and so I realized there is a power from speaking with clarity and with yeah. conviction and with, and with concise facts. Right? Mm-hmm. I think you can persuade people. Um, if you come, if you come to them with an open mind and you meet them where they are. And so, you know, um, at the end of this month where, you know, this recording's happening, you know, I have a piece coming out in USA Today that sort of talks about um, why I feel just so terribly guilty about this Afghanistan experience because mm-hmm. I've been doing everything I can to get my old staff out. And it's largely because of the horrible guilt I feel that I hired this team of people to work mm. for us, to serve our country, and also to help them build a better world. And that service and that commitment to the team they worked on with me is a death sentence to them now. Wow. And I think about, I think about that, that the, you know, history has a way of repeating itself, but I'd say more importantly, history rhymes. And, uh, you know, since then, um, it's something I think about. And so, yeah, so I've written now almost 40 pieces and on a variety of issues. And of course, I think probably most notably the pieces on Asian American hate um, that have resonated. I think um, most people are just surprised that Asians aren't white, to be honest. But, you know, if you talk to anybody, people don't really know where to put Asians in the box, especially in the South, right? I mean, yeah. we're not black, we're not white. We're definitely not black, we're definitely not white. So we're kind of question mark, right? Right. And so when you don't fit in that paradigm, it's very confusing, right? Um, but the truth is, um, you know, Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders have, you know, have been here, uh, at least their history. So Chinese and Japanese Americans have been here, uh, you know, since before the state of California was a state. Oh, wow. Uh, have been when you here put longer. it in context like that, that's really like the development of the country. 100%. I mean, they were involved in the building of the transcontinental railroads mm-hmm. to connect the east to the west. Japanese Americans were central to building the West Coast commerce community. And then those are the same Japanese Americans that got interned during World War II. And I don't know about you, Liz, but did you see Germans and Italian Americans being interned? Because I didn't. (laughs) So there's obviously a distinction there. (laughs) And, but here, and I'll say this, I mean, you've had Chinese and Japanese folks here longer than most European Americans, Mm. but somehow we're still different. We're still the other. Right mm. now, um, to say that all Asian Americans or Chinese and Japanese are far from the truth. I mean, we have um, different moments of migration. Right. I like to say that, um, you know, my family's Mayflower was was a raft. Right. In the 70s, like 130,000 others. Mm. So, you know, we have different times and obviously the different times you enter this country has a different legacy, a different trajectory, a different experience. So to try to compare the experience is a little silly, but to just understand that all these folks still come here with the one thing, which is, you know, the American dream, which is in my mind, the hopes that their children will get to do anything they want without persecution or fear. And, you know, when I look at what my parents did to come here and work 18 hour days and Mm -hmm. not really see their kids very much, um, you know, I'm grateful because I got to have the choice to do whatever I wanted. Um, And now I'm trying to use that choice 
to try to give back to these conversations because, you know, we have seen record hate in Asian American communities. We've seen, obviously, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement. I mean, we're still seeing uh, just horrible tragedies and atrocities that are systemic. Um, And we need to be promoting more allyship here to ensure that we can fight big white supremacy, that we can fight these sort of notional divide and conquer strategies that, by the way, are pretty OG, right? They've been used for a while. <laughs> yeah. uh, they, they're effective. That's why they use them, right? Mm. And Asian Americans are used as a wedge. Because mm. you don't hear this thing of like, oh, you, you know, model minority. You're like, oh, you, you know, you're, you're right. all not doing as well because you don't work as hard as those Asians, right? Mm-hmm. And I hear that. And then I think about how people would say the same thing about me until they decided they wanted to spit on me. Right. And that I go from being the best minority to somebody right. that can be spit on. It doesn't matter. Right. And I'll give you just, I'll give you an example from a couple of weeks ago. Uh, you know, I was walking back from a meeting and two guys go up to me and they're like, hey, Buddha, uh, can we rub your belly for good luck? And um, here's the thing, Liz, I've, I actually have an answer because I've been asked this before, right? Uh, yeah. Um, you know, I'm sure you've been asked those, you know, similar questions when mm-hmm. people go, what do you do for your hair? Or, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, it's ridiculous, but, yeah. but you, there's that naivete slash like racism thing. Right. right? So, uh, and my answer was this, and because again, I've answered this in recent years. And I said, well, you know, I'm not a genie. So if you rub my belly, there's no good luck. <laughs> and that's the only way to do it. Here's the thing. As this is happening, there's a police officer right there. Oh. He doesn't care. He doesn't care either. So now I just want to put this in full perspective. I can make a joke about it because as a, ga- a guy, I can't. If I was a woman in that mm. situation, I'd make a joke. And so we have to really distinguish that. And that's why I always try to, in my writings, as you've seen, try to talk about how, you know, women in this experience have it, you know, exponentially worse. Uh, And as you can, I mean, I'll give you an example from just this year, right? You had multiple women of Asian descent murdered by a white gunman in Atlanta small businesses. Mm -hmm. So he's not chasing me. He's Mm -hmm. chasing them. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot more of them than we know. Mm -hmm. So... That's what I mean. Like, uh, yeah, I'm going to get spit on or maybe be discriminated in the workplace and be told that I don't have leadership skills, but I won't be murdered on the street in the same way. And that's something Mm. that, you know, I sort of try to put in, you know, perspective and context. It doesn't justify that bad things, you know, crummy things happen to me, but it's just to say that it's all relative. So much to dissect from. (laughs) Sorry, I didn't realize it'd go that long. (laughs) No, but it was it was all good. And, and I, I wrote down some things to kind of like no, circle of back to. Um, no. But I do want to save time to talk about um, more of the work that you're, you're doing in Afghanistan. But but first, um, you mentioned to survive, you must blend in. Mm-hmm. And, and I thought that was really important because I think some of the conversation has been, well, um, Asian American Pacific Islanders weren't at Black Lives Matter rallies or they've been quiet. You know, we didn't know this was going on so long. Why now? Right. And so putting it into that context of needing to survive the history of being a refugee and, you know, you really don't want to call attention to yourself. So I I think that um, is a great quote to um, let people know why now, why there's this call to action, why people have been more vocal now? Yeah, I think I think two things. One, um, folks in the community saw a significant spike in hate. 
um, hate against the Asian American Pacific Islander communities is not new, mm -hmm. um, but to see such a toll uh, right. during COVID-19 was significant. And mm -hmm. some of that is largely by fear mongering by, by politicians and mm -hmm. former presidents, um, yep. you know, that talk about a China virus or Kung flu. Mm -hmm. And then that again, gives people top cover to then say, oh yeah, well I can, I can give these people a hard time or I can right. hurt them or I can kind of uh, follow my devils here rather than pretend to have angels. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that spike happened. Um, obviously there were less people out, so you were more targeted when you could be outside. So I think those were factors. And I think too, there was, um, you know, there was a political awakening, um, mm -hmm. you know, last June, right. With, with George Floyd's murder. And I think a lot of Asian Americans really felt that connection. Mm -hmm. um, you know, history says that's always been the case actually from the sixties, you know, um, you know, uh, Yellow Peril and others supporting um, the Black movement during that time, the Civil Rights Movement. Um, again, our history sometimes inconveniently forgets that, but it's, mm -hmm. these are long-standing allyships. And, you know, if you look at polling today, Asian Americans still poll towards the top of supporting the Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter movement. So, you know, I think there was sort of this, this you know, perspective of we're being actively targeted, number one, Number two, we're, you know, we're realizing if we don't say something, others will be hurt too. And that's mm. okay. And the third thing is, I think this acknowledgement that, um, that having a voice um, and speaking up does matter. And that even though that goes against all of our cultural wirings, it is essential. Because if you don't say something, people generally will just not take you seriously. Mm -hmm. And I think you're seeing that more in terms of how, you know, the community advocates. That's the case in politics right now, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, we had record turnout for the community uh, in the recent 2020 elections. Um, they had significant turnout in the Georgia special elections in January 2021. Um, and this is a group you have to understand, Liz, even in the run up to the November election last year, more than half of Asian Americans were not contacted by either party. So like people just sort of decided, oh, you know, we're not going to, we're just not even going to try. This is a group that's 7% of the country. It yeah. is the fastest growing group in the country. The recent census sort of says it's the fastest growing non-white group. Um, and they're moving to places that politically might be irrelevant, right? So, um, you know, you got to think 7% of the country, so much of these races are decided by less than three points, two points. Mm -hmm. so there's an interesting opportunity and you know, tipping points. Um, that whoever party can truly court to these ideas uh, might actually have a significant sense of power heading into this next decade and beyond. So there's so, so I guess to say, right, there's horrible things happening, no way to escape it, seeing others' experiences, having the join together, and then realizing that speaking up means you get power. That you Absolutely. can't, you have to be unapologetic about it. And again, that goes against all of our cultural wiring because we're just trying mm -hmm. to survive. But to truly survive, you need to speak up. I love that, you know, speaking up gives you power. And I think that that is very important um, because I think when, you know, advocacy, right, we always think of that as the person who doesn't have fear. That is the person who is bold. But like you can still be afraid and say, you know what, this happened to me. No matter what that con context is, whether that's sexual assault, bullying, domestic violence, whatever that context is, speaking up really gives you your power. Yeah, I think, you know, when I hear about courage or bravery, you know, the bravest, most courageous people I know are the most terrified and right. still do what they have to do. Right. I, I think that's that's why that's why courage and bravery is so hard. To, that, that's, that's why it's so hard. Because you know exactly what you're walking into, you know. If it would be easier if you didn't know, right? right? If you were naive to it, you're like, sure, you know. Um, but the reality is, 
for the for us to remake a world for all of us, we all have to do hard things. We right. all have to fight together against structures that have been really committed to keeping us down. Um, and you know, I sort of uh, when I when I heard the trembling on my parents' voice when we mm. when we talked about their experience, you know, it's funny. Even though my mother is the one who told me they'd never accept me as American, deep down, my mother was pretending that she would be accepted too. Right. Right. It was like really interesting to see that to say, like, even though they know it's not true, they were still trying to believe it. And that that's sort of where you need to be hopeful, especially as a new American. You sort of hope that you'll be a part of this. And um, there you are to an extent, as we talked about. I mean, you get to be accepted until you're inconvenient. Mm, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And in and, and going back to what you were talking about in regards to perception when you talk about running um, and in school and and they had this perception that you ate dog and even in the reference to Buddha and the coronavirus and and how that relates to what's going on now in Afghanistan. Because I think when a lot of people hear Afghanistan, Taliban, especially, you know, my generation who kind of was developing when um, 9-11 happened, right? Mm -hmm. So it becomes a word and you have an image. And I bring that up because if we are going to bring down biases, if we are going to create new behaviors, being aware of, okay, what do these words mean and how are they relevant to today and what's going on? And sometimes that's hard to decipher when um, the news outlets sometimes they want to kind of, they have their own agenda. And so Mm -hmm. we're shifting through information. And so please tell us a little bit about the work going on now and how this is relevant to what you're doing as far as activism. Sure. I, I think, I mean, it all it all actually connects pretty, uh, really interestingly. I never would have thought of it uh, until the circumstances in which we're seeing, you know, as the United States is withdrawing from its 20-year war in Afghanistan. Um, you know, I think one of the things I think about certainly is to demystify what Afghanistan is. And Afghanistan is a place with a very complex history, Mm -hmm. one of the richest, um, most genuine histories you can think of with groups of people that are diverse, but still want two things. One is a better future for themselves and two to ensure that their children have a better lives than they do. There's very little daylight there between, you know, a U.S. citizen and an Afghan citizen. Uh, Far from, far from. I think where the challenges have been, um, you know, has been in the case of sort of ideology and terror. And there are certainly groups out there that are utilizing that particular in ideology that is actively trying to disenfranchise and marginalize women and, and girls. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the proudest achievements I got to work on while I was there was supporting, um, you know, women paralegals, women judges, women activists to help them. Uh, advocate for their rights, the same rights that are enshrined in this Afghan constitution. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's just so important because again, speaking up means power. Right. And that, um, you know, the struggles with that have been significant. And I'll tell you with, uh, with this withdrawal, this very <laughs> challenging transition, um, you know, people look at it as some faraway place. And I look at it as people that I had tea with people I right. bread with people I did work with people that in some circumstances saved my life mm-hmm. and um, the guilt that I feel that maybe when we leave when the United States leaves that these folks will be targeted killed or worse 
um, is something that's hard to take in. And that's why I'm working with a variety of, of civic organizations and private citizens, folks who are alumni of this experience, veterans of this experience, right? 20 years, a lot of people went in and out of Afghanistan, right. had, had their lives touched, right? And you, I think you've probably seen the news on groups of people trying to get their former interpreters out or their right. former assistants out because, uh, you know, anyone who's sort of committed to working with us made it very clear that they were rejecting a world with the Taliban that sees the world a certain way, especially again with women and girls, but by them working with us, um, you know, that also meant they were under serious threat and some of which have been maimed or targeted or worse. Uh, and when we leave that will, the retrib retributions and reprisals will only increase. So that's what's been keeping my August so um, frenzied, but how it ties into Asian activism, um, you know, being a Vietnamese refugee, um, you know, I don't, I don't get to talk to you, Liz, if my parents aren't given the right to come here. Right. You know, we were part of a group of 130, 140,000 Indo-Chinese, Vietnamese who, who came here and they came with nothing and, you know, have been able to build and foster a community. Right. Um, I, I expect and I know I'll see the same thing with Afghans who come here. They will come here with nothing and they will produce some really special things. Um, three of the largest states with Afghan communities, California, Texas, Virginia, they will certainly most benefit. Uh, these are some of the most entrepreneurial people I know. They hustle. They hustle. That's for sure. You have to. You, right? I was going to say, you have to. When you're coming with to. nothing, like you, you have to. Absolutely. So, you know, but I, you know, but again, you know, today's Afghan, you know, yesterday's Afghan was, was me and my family. Mm. And so the connection is very powerful. And um, the trauma that comes with that journey, you know, right. my family, my parents were the lucky ones. But actually, a lot of my family didn't get out of the country until after relations were normalized between the United States and Vietnam 20 years later. So I actually didn't meet most of my family until I was 13 years old. Wow, that's a trauma in regards to um, refugees that often is not highlighted. Never. And, you know, again, you come here and you you have to struggle to figure out things, a system to survive, to, to be a part of a community so that you have support. But you always have this underlying survivor's guilt, mm. you know, this feeling like, why you, why, you know, don't blow this. Um, and I know, you know, what I advocate for when I have conversations with the Biden administration and with, you know, on, in media and on TV is to talk about why we need to ensure not just that we get as many folks here as possible who's, you know, supported our, you know, supported us and our allied forces, um, but also to ensure when they get here, we set them up to succeed. Mm -hmm. providing wraparound services, providing, you know, cultural connection points, providing um, supplies that are necessary. Again, it, and many of these folks are coming with small families, many, many, many. And so, and I'm sure you saw the images of um, women throwing their children over fences with yes. Marines catching them. Think mm -hmm. about that. That's how desperate the situation is that a mother is willing to throw her child over a fence to a stranger on the hope that her life, that her child's life will be better now, knowing that she might not ever see that kid again. That's the situation there. That's what's on the line. I mean, it, it's, it's interesting the way, again, you put that because 
I feel like in America, we do this thing when we talk about like refugees and immigration, like we're like those people, mm-hmm. they just mm-hmm. want a handout. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm really thinking about like, you are willing to say, I'm going to take this little chance, no matter how the sliver and, and, you know, throw my child to whoever this is and hope that life is better. I mean, it really is a call to action. Yeah. And, and think about this. And this is what I tell um, folks who are skeptical of taking in refugees. I just tell them, I go look at your rural communities, um, you know, where there's very little healthcare access. Mm-hmm. The vast majority of the doctors who end up serving these communities are immigrants. Mm-hmm. So they're filling in spaces where America needs to be more resilient. And they can only be more resilient with these other voices and experiences and peoples. So it's not like some, like, it isn't just some handout. It's actually right. something much bigger. It's actually great for us. It's great for our economy. And mm-hmm. frankly, it's great for the thing that makes America the greatest country in the history on earth, but with a ton of problems, which is that our values is what makes us stand apart, right? It isn't the weapons. It isn't the military might. It's none of that. It's that everybody wants to come here because they know what the country stands for. That's why they come here. They go anywhere else if you really think about it. It's not exactly easy to get here. There's two oceans. Two oceans, <laughs> Canada and Mexico. Not easy, right? Yeah. They can go anywhere else, but they come here. Because this is the place where where things are possible and other places where it's clearly not. That is a very wonderful place to pause. Thank you again for for coming by and inspiring me to um, think about how I can use my voice and how I can be a help to others. And um, before I ask you my last question, please tell us, you know, where can we keep up to date with what's going on and how can, you know, people listening um, help, whether it is in the Asian hate arena or mm-hmm. Afghanistan, what can people do if they're they're listening and feeling inspired mm-hmm. um, about creating change? Yeah. Um, and I'm happy to share these in your show notes. Um, Please. You know, yes. on, a- on Asian hate, uh, I tell people three things. Um, number one, everybody should learn the history. Mm. It's a complex history, but everyone should learn it, have a baseline. Even most Asian Americans don't know their own history. And so I tell everybody to uh, watch the PBS documentary on Asian Americans and it is a really great educational, yeah, it's educational, thoughtful. Um, you know, when I advise fortune 500 companies, I tell them that they should screen it for everybody and people do, because it's important to understand the baseline of where people are coming from. Because again, if you want to understand a community, you need to start with where they came from. Mm -hmm. That's sort of a great starting point and how they got here and why. Secondly, um, you know, I tell everybody to participate in a bystander training. Um, Asian Americans advancing justice are doing great work on, um, ensuring that, if you see a horrible thing happening, you'll do something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't want, I don't want folks to just be another statistic, right. one that just watches bad things happen. And three, um, you know, encourage your friends to share their story. So like, <laughs> it's a joke I have with my with my black friends specifically. But when something horrible happens in the world, you know, my black friends get inundated with messages. It's exhausting. Yes. When horrible things happen to Asians, people get people get no messages. Wow, um, no. And so when people ask you for like, oh, you know, share your experience as an Asian American, they're like, what? You want to talk to me? It's a very <laughs> different phenomenon. You have to understand, you know, we, we're about blending in, right? Right. And so like actively encourage, you know, your Asian American friends or other communities of color to share their story. So powerful. 
On Afghanistan, uh, I would say the best thing you can do is to write your member of Congress or elected officials, um, you know, talking about why um, refugee resettlement and getting our allies out is so important. Part, you know, for two reasons. One, you believe that, um, you know, we we stand for democracy and human rights, and that's why we need to have them here. And two, the belief that our word means something. Mm -hmm. We made a commitment to telling our allies they would be safe. We should put in the energy to do that. The polls suggest that, you know, on average right now, more than 90% of Democrats support that notion. Um, you know, 79% of independents and 76% of, of Republicans right now believe that our, you know, Afghan allies, interpreters, others should be found, you know, be given safety. But mm. we need to keep talking about it. Otherwise, Absolutely. it just sort of blends into the next news cycle. So those are a couple of things you, Liz, and, you know, folks listening here can do uh, to support Afghans and also to support, um, you know, Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. That, that's what I would say. And the last thing, when they do get here, there are great opportunities to volunteer your time and energy. Um, you know, the, you know, Lutheran Social Services is doing great work on folks resettling here right now. Um, but International Rescue Committee, Refugees International, doing great work and, you know, donating your time and energy, right? It could be donating crayons for all these little kids. It could Absolutely. be, uh, you know, providing food or meals or furniture, depending mm -hmm. where you live, right? So there's real things that citizens can do to welcome these new Americans, because like, like we talked about, it's going to be, a, it's going to be, this is, once they get here, it's only the start of the journey. Absolutely. They have a long way to go. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, listeners, I encourage you to be aware of your biases, right? Again, I think when we hear the word Afghanistan, Taliban, all, all these words, you know, being aware of that. So that way, when you are confronted with someone and they say, yeah, I am a refugee from this place, you're not coming from a place of hate or bigotry, but you're looking at that person and you're being open to hear their story and who they are. And you are humanizing them instead of going off of that image that you have in your, your head. Absolutely. Jeff, my final question is what's in your cup? And this is where I ask my guests and my listeners, what are three things that you need to have a better day and better week? And, and while you're thinking of your answer, I'm going to give you mine. So I, I love how you said um, doing more for those who have less. That is the first thing I'm going to add to my cup. I want to do more for those that have less. So I'm adding that to my cup so that way I can have a better week because, you know, when you help someone else out, you just in turn end up having a better week and a better outcome. I'm adding knowledge because like you said, learning about history, learning about people. I mean, that's how we grow. That's how we help each other. That's how we support each other. Some knowledge. And I'm also adding prayer to my cup because this can be overwhelming and sometimes just prayer to ground myself, prayer to know how to help people. And like, I can't reach everyone. So just prayer that they feel comforted and that they feel that they are safe and that families that are maybe presently separated can one day be reunited. So I'm adding doing more for those that have less knowledge and prayer to my cup. Jeff, what about you? Well, I think on the point you bring up about um, you know, giving more to the communities with less. What I've learned in all my travels, though, is, is that people who have the least always give the most. Mm. And so it, it sort of makes sense. Um, and I think the three things in your cup are going to be very, whole, you know, wholesome and quite sweet. Uh, you know, three things for me today. 
Uh, you know, the first is, you know, I have a number of cases I'm working on to get Afghans home. So the first thing I need is a little bit of luck uh, <laughs> to ensure they can get to safety. And for that, uh, you know, I'm taking that with the best grain of salt possible. Uh, two, you know, obviously, you know, doing whatever I can, um, you know, to give myself some recharge time because mm. um, the best ability is availability. Right. If you're burnt out, you can't help anybody. So I'm trying to carve out time for myself. You know, later today, I'll go for a run or, you know, take a nap or something along those lines just to kind of be a little more restorative. And then three, you know, every day I try to call um, someone each day um, on their birthday to wish them a happy birthday. Now, people don't pick up phone calls these days because they just assume it's junk phone calls, <laughs> you know, like some sort of, you know, scam. But uh, I always try to call someone once a day. Um, just to, you know, hear how they've been checked in and, you know, it's a milestone in their life. And I think it's just so important, right? I mean, we can't see everyone all the time, but just, just letting people know you're thinking about them, I think can go a long way. I love that. Like you, you don't really think about, uh, wishing someone happy birthday as a, a major thing, but it is, that's, you know, something that you can do and just say, Hey, I'm thinking about you. You only get one a year. Right. So you got to think of it that way. <laughs> Jeff, thank you so much for stopping by. Best of luck to all that you do. And please do not be a stranger to Coffee and Combos. Hey, I'm looking forward to it. Thanks so much again for the opportunity. Liz.